There's a great irony about the gospel. It is this. The gospel is good news, yet it offends many people. Why is that? Well, first, what is the gospel? The gospel is the historical reality that 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus of Nazareth walked this earth. He lived a perfect and sinless life. And then he was unjustly put to death on the Roman cross. But the gospel teaches us he didn't die on the cross for anything he had done. He died for what we had done. He paid the penalty for our sin in our place on that cross. But because he was sinless and perfect, death could not hold him down. No, after three days, he rose again. And he appeared to many of his followers as evidence of the resurrection. But the Bible tells us the story doesn't end there. He then ascended to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God, where all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, so that every knee should bow and tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the Bible doesn't say the story ends there either. It says someday Jesus Christ is coming back for us. Christ will return. You can bank on that. It's a guarantee. And so when you're a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, this is a very, very hopeful message. This is really, really good news, isn't it? But if you're not a believer, it's kind of an offensive message. It says that we are sinners. I don't know about you, I don't really like to be called a sinner. It says that we need a Savior. Have you noticed that in our society, all the superheroes we look up to, they're just saving other people? They're not dependent people that need to be saved? So we don't, we don't like that either, that we need to be saved. It calls us to repentance. That means to turn from sin and toward God. And I don't know about you again, but I don't always like to say sorry. Much less have my whole life changed or call someone else named Jesus my Lord. It's a little bit offensive to people. And then it tells us there's going to be a judgment. That means we will be held accountable for our actions and that really can offend people. And so you can see how for believers, this is good news, but for unbelievers, the gospel is offensive. And don't take my word for it, take the Bible's word for it. The Bible says that Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to those who do not believe. But for those who do believe, the cross is the power of God. That's why as the gospel message goes out, Jesus says alongside it, blessed are those who are not offended by me. For those of us who are not offended, but rather give our lives to Christ, we get to experience a life-giving relationship with Jesus for who he truly is. One who does not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. We get to have a relationship with the Lord who is gentle and lowly in heart. There's nothing better. But you can see how the gospel leads to some being offended and what I would call some being acquitted, freed from all the charges of the wages of sin against them with a verdict of not guilty because that's what happens when we believe in Jesus. This leads to our take-home message. The gospel offers us a choice, offended or acquitted. Offended or acquitted. When most hear the gospel message, the good news about Jesus, they take offense at him and they go away. And they go away empty-handed. 
But for those of us who say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I believe you died on that cross for my sins. I give you my life. I make you my Lord. Then we are acquitted of all charges of the wages of sin against us with a verdict of not guilty. Is there any better news than that? So how do you respond when you hear the gospel? Do you respond by taking offense at Jesus? Or do you respond by believing in Jesus and thus being acquitted of all the charges against you? You know, this morning is just a full gospel message. I figure that uh, we can't hear it enough. So I'm excited to just walk through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 with you. We're going to walk through the gospel in four steps, okay? It's going to start a little bit bleak, but it's going to get more hopeful as we go. So here is point number one. Uh, If you're taking notes, there are bulletins on your seats with fill-in-the-blanks. Here is point number one. The gospel exposes our rebellion. The gospel exposes our rebellion. Look at verse one with me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And that's a lot of tough news, isn't it? Look at all these descriptive terms for our rebellion. So I say our rebellion, I mean our sin, because that's what sin is, right? It's rebellion against the holy, just, and righteous God. And these verses lay out just how much all of us have rebelled against God. It says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It says we were following the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan. We were living in our sinful passions and desires. That's what the flesh means. And then it says this, we were by nature... Children of wrath by nature. What does that mean? Well, it means that even though we were created good, now there is something bent, fallen, and broken in us. Something's not right. We have a sin nature. Uh, Someone put it this way. uh, We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. There's something wrong inside. The same person who wrote Ephesians also wrote Romans. His name's Paul. And Paul says this in Romans 7. Maybe you can relate to this. I know I can a little bit. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I don't do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. I don't do the good I want. But the evil I don't want is what I keep on doing. Right? He's saying, I know it's right, but I can't quite carry it out. I keep trying to do what's good. I know it's good, but I can't do it. And that leads him to say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Have you ever felt that way? I'm trying my hardest to be good enough for God, and I just can't quite meet the standard. Well, I have encouraging news for you this morning. You can't meet the standard. You never will be able to meet the standard on your own. In other words, we need help. But help is coming. Help is coming. Now something I want to be clear about our church 
is we seek to preach a full gospel. Uh, We don't preach what I would call a self-help gospel. And and here's what I mean by a self-help gospel. I mean a message that minimizes or doesn't talk about our sin and says we're basically good and all we need is just a little more effort. You know, maybe pull up our bootstraps, try a little harder. We don't believe in that type of gospel. Here's what that type of gospel is like. If you know my story, you know I've torn my ACL uh, not one, not two, but three times. So I've, I've had a few trips to the doctor over my years. Now imagine if when I tore my ACL, uh, I went to the doctor and he walks up to me and he has like a little colorful band-aid and he just puts it on my knee and says, well, you're good now. Go play some more basketball. I would look at him like, are you nuts? I mean, I can't walk. <laughs> Something's torn in here. Like, can't you go in there and like, tie it up, and I don't know what doctors do, but I feel like I need surgery, right? Well, that's what a self-help gospel is like. It's like putting a Band-Aid on when we need open-heart, spiritual surgery. Listen, we're sinners. We need a Savior. We need someone to come and save us. We are in the flea market of sin, waiting for someone to drag us out. It's a bleak picture in verses 1 through 3. But we have to start there when we talk about the gospel because a low view of sin leads to a low view of grace. A high view of our sin leads to a high view of grace. The gospel exposes our rebellion, but it's about to get a lot more encouraging. Here's the next point. The gospel magnifies God's righteousness. Now look at verses 4 through 7 with me. But... God. Highlight those words, underline those words, put a star next to those two words. Those might be the two best words in your Bible. But God, we were dead, helpless, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Can you tell I'm excited about this? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Not just grace, riches of grace. Not just riches of grace, immeasurable riches of grace. And kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, but God, He loved us too much to leave us where we were. We are by nature sinners. He is by nature kind and loving. Look at these descriptions of who our God is. It says, He is rich in mercy. He loves us with great love. He makes us alive together with Christ. He saves us by grace. He raises us from the dead to be with Christ. He seats us with Christ in the heavenly realms. He shows us immeasurable riches of grace. He is kind to us. We're by nature sinners. He's by nature kind. And when you understand that, when you understand the magnitude of how much this God loves you. It changes you. It should. And if it hasn't changed you, there's a problem. You know, Jesus told this parable in the Gospels. He talked about this king. He said there was this king who one day had to settle accounts with his servants. 
And he brought a servant before him. And this servant owed a debt. But it wasn't just any small debt. This servant, who was a day laborer, owed uh, 20 years wages. Okay? Basically an unpayable debt. And the servant fell down before the king and said, listen, just give me time, I'll pay back the debt. And what the king did is he was moved with compassion for the servant and erased the debt. And that represents our God. And we are the servants who owe an unpayable debt. And he, moved with compassion, has forgiven our debt. But the parable doesn't end there. That servant had another servant. And they went off and they had a servant who owed them a hundred days wages. Not a small sum of money, but a lot smaller than 20 years wages. And they treated their servant harshly. And they threw them in prison and said, pay me back what you owe right now. And when the king caught wind of this, he threw that servant in prison. Why? Because they hadn't truly understood what they'd received. And I think that parable is a perfect picture of us when we hear the gospel and it doesn't change us. When we hear about how much God loves us and we stay the same, we shouldn't be the same. God wants to change our hearts. It says that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. That's what it says in Romans. But let me make a distinction for you that's really careful. Because maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, Pastor Billy, uh, I've believed in Christ, but I don't know, I look up every day and I still feel like a sinner. Well, I have good news for you. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> you know, I would put it this way. There's a difference between remaining sin and reigning sin. As Christians, even after we believe in Jesus, as we await His return, we still got a little bit of sin in us. We've still got some remaining sin. I mean, on a daily basis, I have to take, take thoughts captive to Christ. I have to think about my words and my actions. I don't always get it right. That's remaining sin. Our hope of glory is that when Christ returns, it says we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. Okay, that day is coming. Until then, we've still got some remaining sin, don't we? And throughout our lives, we're trying to become more like Christ every day. That's called sanctification. But there's a big difference between remaining sin and reigning sin. Reigning sin is when sin rules over you. When you are a slave to sin. And Jesus Christ died on the cross to deal with that. Sin should no longer reign over us. The Bible says those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we need to make that distinction. Listen, we're all in process. But just know if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God has dealt with our sin. That's why in verses 1 through 3, it was past tense verbs. We were dead, but now we've been made alive by Christ. The gospel exposes our rebellion. The gospel magnifies God's righteousness. Now here is the next one. The gospel tears down our religion. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now when I say our religion, I mean our man-made effort to score points with God. Have you ever treated God like a genie? Say, God, you know, I had a really good week. I think you owe me something. 
Don't we do that with God? I know in talking to my dad, my dad grew up, was growing up playing basketball. He said he would go to Mass every day before his games, right? And it's that idea. It's that idea that somehow we can play this score-keeping game with God. And uh, these verses tear that down, okay? I don't know. I didn't tell my dad I was going to share that. I hope he's, Dad, if you're watching, I'm sorry. <laughs> this approach of, God, I did this. Now you owe me something. Uh, God tears that down. He doesn't owe us anything. And when we recognize the gravity of our sin and the gravity of his love, we lose any feelings of self-righteousness. I hope when people come into our church, they don't feel any self-righteousness, okay? Uh, We're not a museum for the righteous. We're a hospital for the broken. We are broken people who need Christ. Now, does that mean that we don't do good works? No. We see in verse 10, we were created for good works. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. But what does it look like to God when he sees us trying to earn his favor? I think it looks like the Tower of Babel. You remember the story of the Tower of Babel? Uh, There was this group of people early on in the Bible in Genesis, uh, and they came together and they said, hey, we've got this great idea. Let's build a tower to heaven. How do you think that went? So they start building this tower, you know, and it's getting taller and taller, and God looks down and he sees this great act of pride and he scatters them. But that's what religion apart from Christ looks like. It looks like trying to build this tower of religious self-effort up to a God that we can never reach. And God doesn't want us to do that. In fact, God only gives us one grounds for boasting. And he says this in Jeremiah. He says, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That's all we can boast in. We serve a holy, gracious God. He saved us, and I know him. And I want to tell everybody about it. That's our only ground for boasting at Prairie Bible Church. So how do good works play into all this? That's a question as a pastor I know Craig gets, I get all the time. How do good works play into the gospel? Well, here is a pattern. I would encourage you to memorize it, write it down, whatever you got to do. It will really help you. Uh, So you'll see the pattern up on the screen. And it says, sin, grace, gratitude, good works, okay? So we talked about sin, right? That we're sinners, we're in a helpless situation. But then God showed up, but God, in the gracious gospel of sending his son, and his grace overcame our sin. And you want to know where that leads your heart? Gratitude, right? When you understand the magnitude of your sin, the magnitude of God's grace, like, you're just filled with thankfulness. You just walk around glowing that God would do this for me. And then out of that gratitude flows good works. You see, God, underst- God cares about why we do what we do. The Pharisees did a lot of external good things, but they did them for the wrong reasons. They were playing a scorekeeping game with God. They were trying to build that tower up to heaven. And you know what? God tore that down. Because God wants us to do good works because of our thankfulness, because of our gratitude, knowing that we don't deserve anything. And so again, at Prairie Bible Church, I hope we are a group of Christians who is so thankful that we can't help but serve God. Amen? So sin, grace, gratitude, good works. The gospel exposes our rebellion. The gospel magnifies God's righteousness. The gospel tears down our religion. And here's the last one. The gospel pleads for our 
repentance. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not saved by good works, we're saved for good works. But what I want you to focus on in that last verse is this. It says, we are his workmanship. And I want you to really hear me when I say this. You are created by God. You belong to God. And your heart will be restless until you come home to God. I'm going to say it again. You are created by God. You belong to God and your heart will be restless until you find your rest in God, until you come home. The Bible says, we plead for you, be reconciled to God. But as Pastor Craig so often says, Christ is a gentleman. He won't make you do it. He'll compel you to do it. I'm reminded of the prodigal son, remember his story? He ran away from home, squandered everything he had. He was feeding on the pig's food until one day he, it says he came to his senses. He said, when I was with my father, I had everything I needed. And he went home. The gospel points us to this conclusion. Come home. Come home. Listen, if you have never believed in Jesus, come home this morning. If you prayed a sinner's prayer 20 years ago, but you know you're not walking with Jesus, come home this morning. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Come boldly to the throne of grace that you might find help in your time of need. Come home. What's your response to the gospel? Offended or acquitted? The gospel exposes our rebellion. The gospel magnifies God's righteousness. The gospel tears down our religion and the gospel pleads for our repentance. Band, you can come up. I just want to close with this. This is an illustration that helps me understand the gospel and so maybe it will help you. So there's this story about this great artist. In fact, this artist was the greatest artist that ever lived. And they were approaching death And all the great art collectors, all the rich, started to wonder what's going to happen to his great art. Well, it turned out that after he passed away, he had left in his will that he wanted to have one final auction where he would sell away and give away all of his priceless art. And so the buzz, the news went all throughout the world and all the great art collectors came to this final auction. It was a packed auditorium and the auction began. And the very first portrait, the very first painting they brought out on behalf of the artist was this small, unassuming picture of a young man. In fact, to many there, they mocked and jeered and scoffed at it. They said, that can't be the work of the artist. And so no one was bidding on it. But there was one person there who said to themselves, this is my favorite artist. I love this artist. And if this artist loved this portrait of this young man enough to make it the first one at this auction, I want it. And because no one was bidding, they bid a small amount of money and they received the painting. And then with a great cry, the auctioneer cried out, the auction is over. According to the will of the artist, whoever purchases this first picture of his son 
should receive all the rest of my art. And all the art was given to that person. And all the great art collectors of the world left the auction, taking offense at the artist. That is the gospel. We serve a God who says, I love my son. And whoever loves my son loves me. Come home to the son this morning. Come home. All you got to do is say, Lord, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I believe you died on that cross for my sins. I give you my life. I make you my Lord. And you'll never be the same.